You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called a portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone, and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host, Alex Marku, on November 12th, 2021. And on today's episode, for the investing segment, I'm going to run down why I bought GameStop. I'm going to briefly explain what I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge are, considering I bought them and put them in my portfolio. And I'm going to give a sneak peek into next week's option plays. For the gambling segment, I'm going to recap the three round robins I created. And then get ready, because I'm about to give out four more round robins for this upcoming weekend. Then to wrap up the episode, I'll give you the two investors that gave me my investing philosophy, Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch. Aside from letting you know why they're well known in the investing community, I'll provide you with some very interesting stories and hopefully some you haven't heard of yet. Hope you enjoy the episode. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome all my apes and retail investors who think alike. For today's investing segment, I'm going to run down why I bought GameStop, some emotional reasons and fundamental ones, and then I'll summarize as much as I know about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge, since I bought $50 worth of each yesterday. To finish off the segment, I'll give out two options plays that I have my eye on for next week. So let's start it off with why GameStop. For emotional reasons, I got in with the Wall Street Bets crowd around the January squeeze. For me, it was January 25th when I found out about Wall Street Bets. A little too late to be able to post those tendy gains, but I wasn't late enough to join the actual fun. You see, prior to the buy button being turned off, I bought 4 shares worth of GameStop and I believe my average was about 200 to 250 at the time. Up until that day, I actually had this risk management system that I would use. But then with the Wall Street Bets crowd, I threw that all out the window, sold almost all of my positions, and then bought 4 shares of GameStop within the next 2 days. And then I saw the buy button being turned off and all this stuff, yada yada yada. There's a little bit more in episode 0 if you really want to hear it. But overall, I stuck with the crowd, I held, and I eventually wound up buying more than just 4 shares and I now have a total of 45 shares. I've also directly registered 35 shares of them. You see, there's this huge experiment going on in the market, and I felt like being part of it. So that's the emotional side. It's completely an emotional reason. There's almost no logic to it, aside from the fact that there's a bunch of shorts on the other side, who I believe doubled down to bring this price down, and whether I'm right or wrong, along with millions of other retail apes, the answer will be revealed at some point in the future. 
I'm just going to hold and live my life. So you can see how this is just truly an emotional tie to the stock. It's because as a famous man once said, I just like the stock. Now that I got the emotional reason out of the way, let's get into the real juice. The real reason for buying it, aside from just the fact that you've got millions and millions of retail investors who are devoted to this company. After taking a look at GameStop's financial statements, I picked the three things that stood out the most for me off of each of one of them. Starting off with the company's balance sheet, I really like the amount of current assets, especially cash, that they have on hand. This also goes really well with the current ratio that they're holding. Now the last episode, I believe I tried to give an example of the current ratio with Roblox, and after listening through it one more time, I think I did a pretty bad job. So I'm here to redeem myself right now. The current ratio lets you know how a company is standing with their debt in the short run. In the case of GameStop, as of July 31st, 2021, which was the last time they posted their balance sheet, they had current assets of $2.65 billion with the current liabilities of $1.19 billion. This puts out their current ratio to be 2.23. What this means is for every dollar of liability that GameStop owned in that moment, they had $2.23 to cover for it. This means that when their bill is due in the short run, meaning this upcoming year or anything within a year because that's what's considered current liability, they can pay for it twice essentially. Do you want an even steamier number? If you were to take their current assets and divide it by their total liabilities, not the current liabilities but all of their liabilities, you would get a ratio of 1.57. That means they have an extra 57 cents to cover all of the liabilities they own with just their current assets. And let me not mention that they've got cash and cash equivalents of 1.72 billion, which is already more than their total liabilities. So if they wanted to, GameStop could pay off all of their liabilities right now and still have some cash left on hand. Now, typically businesses won't do that because you'll wanna reinvest that money into research and development and staying competitive and all this other stuff. So far, GameStop's balance sheet looks pretty strong to me. Now, if you look in the statement of cash flows, you can get an idea of where all of these current assets came from. If the balance sheet tells you how strong a company is, the statement of cash flows lets you know how much blood the company has in it, how much is draining, and also at the same time, how much blood is being regenerated at the same time. In a way, it gives you a sense if a company is either burning through all of their cash, stockpiling it, or at least investing it and rerouting it in smarter ways. So what did GameStop's statement of cash flows tell me? Well, it whispered to me, Alex, I'm strong. And then aside from just telling me that it was strong, the financing section of the cash flow statement told the whole story of where GameStop got all of its cash from. Wow, you don't say. But by looking at the change from the last quarter's financial cash flows, GameStop essentially gained almost $1 billion worth of cash flows in financing activities. The first quarter of 2001, they had about $169 million worth of financing cash flows. And then this most recent quarter, they had $1.032 billion worth of financing cash flows. So yeah, that's about a change of about $1 billion of cash. And if you were to compare the first quarter to second quarter change in the balance sheet of current assets, it's just about that $1 billion mark. 
So aside from just being really large numbers, what does this mean, and how did they actually obtain this cash? Well, after opening the little drop tabs that Yahoo Finance provides for the financing cash flow section, you can see that GameStop had about $1.6 billion worth of issuance in common stock. They also paid off about $490 million worth of some long-term debt, which is why the total for financing cash flows activities is just under $1.1 billion. Now I did some fun little math on the side. If you were to take the $1.6 billion worth of cash they got by issuing stock, and you use your smooth brain, you would understand that during the second quarter of GameStop, the price really didn't go below 150 And I might be mistaken here, but I think it reached 300 at some point. So here's where I'm going with this. If you take $1.6 billion worth and you divide it by 150 which is what I'm assuming is the lowest amount the price was during this quarter, the most amount of shares GameStop could have issued was $10.6 million. If they issued the price around 350, I'm saying 350 because that's what I put down here, it would be four and a half million shares issued. So this means that GameStop issued anywhere between four and a half to ten and a half million shares, and they got about 1.6 billion dollars worth of funding. Anyone with a short thesis out there? Rip. In the past, the short thesis may have had a point that the pandemic was looming, video games were being sold online, and no one wanted to go in stores anymore to buy physical hard copies. The thing is, I believe times are changing. And I'm going to use the income statement to show you just what I mean. What the income statement is used for is to determine how a company's performance was measured over a certain period of time. So if you're looking at annual income statements, you're looking at how a company performed over a year. And if you're looking at quarterly income statements, you're looking at how the company performed during that quarter. This is important if you're looking at certain companies that are cyclical, because you have to understand during what parts of the cycle do they have to meet their numbers. Some key numbers that investors look at on the income statement are revenue, any kind of operational expenses, the EBITDA, which I'm not going to explain right now, and earnings per share. By far, I think earnings per share is one of the most important factors because typically that and revenue is what analysts try to estimate. And then once companies have their earnings report, analysts can say if a company is doing good or bad based off of those projections and then what actually happened. So now let me try to explain what I see on GameStop's income statements. I'm going to solely focus only on the earnings per share. Using their annual income statements, meaning I'm measuring the whole year, in 2019, they had an earnings per share of 53 cents positive. In 2020, which was the pandemic year, they had an earnings per share of negative $2.20. And so far, only half of the year for GameStop is over for 2021, so I'm not sure entirely what it is yet. But we can still make an estimated guess, and this is where I'm going to show you the green. Since we know half the equation since quarter 1 and 2 are in the books for GameStop, I've looked at those numbers and their earnings per share for each quarter was negative 45 cents in the first one and negative 76 cents in the second one. Now since I'm no high class analyst yet, I wasn't able to run hundreds of models to find out an estimated earnings per share for GameStop's third and fourth quarter earnings calls. 
so I just looked online and looked at some estimates for reference. On an earnings per share website, I saw that one of the analyst estimates had GameStop's third quarter earnings per share at negative 54 cents and then the fourth quarter earnings per share at $1.37 in the green. Now if we were to combine all of the four quarters I just listed and the earnings per share, two of which we know and two of which we're speculating, the total would come out to negative 38 cents per share for GameStop's 2021 fiscal year. Now even though it's a negative number, don't let that scare you. The fact that it jumped from negative 220 to a possible negative 0.38 in my scenario is a very good sign. And this is a perfect time to buy because you want to buy GameStops and companies when their earnings per share are negative if in the future you believe it's going to be positive. Because once those earnings per share starts becoming positive and it starts climbing up higher and higher, Wall Street and other analysts around are going to have no choice but to actually start adding this to their portfolio. And if you're in early, you get to let Wall Street pump stocks for you. Now I hope after adding some fundamental reasons and I also have my emotional ties behind, you can see why I decided to add GameStop as the first stock to this portfolio. I placed in the order yesterday after hours and sometime this morning the order should have gone through. Unless GameStop opened up today without my knowledge above $300 and stayed that way for the rest of today, I'm pretty sure on Monday I'll be able to let you know at what price I bought GameStop at. My final smooth brain thoughts on GameStop, the one bit of information I left for the very end, the market cap of GameStop is $15.6 billion, Roblox's market cap is $56.76 billion. Even before Roblox had its 40% surge after their earnings report came out, they were valued at $33.6 billion. This is twice the market cap of GameStop, and in my humble opinion, I believe GameStop's got just as big if not a bigger customer base and the same amount if not better infrastructure set up and ready to run the sporting world. So now that I've discussed the one stock I added to this portfolio already today, let me discuss the cryptos that I've decided to add to the portfolio yesterday. So yesterday on November 11th around 4.20pm, I put $50 into Doge. $50 into Ethereum, and $50 into Bitcoin. I'm about to let you know at what prices and how many coins of each we got, and then I'll quickly try and give a summary of what I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge are. Off of Coinbase, I put $50 into Bitcoin at the price point of $64,643.39, and I received 0 0.00074 269 Bitcoin. When I bought Ethereum, it was at a price point of $4,746.56 and I received 0.01011469 Ethereum. And then for Doge, it says I bought at a price point of 26 cents and I received 183.5 Doge. Now I hope you memorize those numbers because you're never going to hear them again. I'm joking, I'm going to put this all in an Excel spreadsheet and we're going to let Excel do Excel things. So before I started talking about crypto and giving you my two cents into what I think it is, I wanted to give you a full disclosure that I'm still very new to crypto trading. I honestly only started at the beginning of this year in January. Unlike stocks and other stuff like that where I have a little more experience in and some background knowledge from my accounting degree, 
This crypto world is completely new, but I'm ready to run around naked in it. So, what is Bitcoin? From my smooth brain understanding, Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer -peer payment center that is run by the people. You've got miners that solve block transactions and they get rewarded off of solving these blocks. What they get rewarded is Bitcoins. The amount of Bitcoin that's going to be in circulation is only going to be 21 million ever. So far, it's not been all unlocked because as these miners unlock these blockchains, more and more Bitcoin gets released. At some point in the coding software, miners aren't going to be getting rewarded for solving blockchains anymore. Instead, it'll probably be just how the regular banking system is now, where it's small transaction fees, and I mean super small transaction fees, compared to what banks are giving out. So what's all the hype? Well, it's the technology that Bitcoin software provides. See, they provide for faster trades and faster transactions. Meaning you can link whatever you want from the outside world to Bitcoin's network. And then it's going to be a faster network because you linked it on Bitcoin's code. At least that's what I think Bitcoin is. And that's why I think there's all this adaptation and why the price keeps going up. Also, inflation seems to help this out. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't Bitcoin a currency? Yeah, and so is gold, but you don't see everyone walking around with gold pellets. It's because something is tied to gold to create that currency, and that is your fiat cash. What Bitcoin is in the crypto universe is gold to all of these other coins. All these other coins are tied to Bitcoin's software to be able to run, I think. Don't take my word for granted, because I'm still just a crypto noob. But those are my two cents for Bitcoin. So if I think Bitcoin's the real deal, why would I invest in Ethereum? Well, aside from being diverse in my investments, I also think Ethereum has a lot of potential. And I am seeing this late, but it's never too late to get in. Ethereum is one of the second biggest cryptos in the world. And it started off in 2015 with 72 million coins in its cap. The thing that's different from Ethereum and Bitcoin is that Ethereum doesn't have a cap. Bitcoin's going to stop producing coins at 21 million coins, but Ethereum has a fixed print amount of 18 million coins per year. It's almost like having a fixed inflation. Wouldn't that be nice for cash? And like Bitcoin, Ethereum has a decentralized ledger that someone can use to create, publish, or monetize anything off of that platform. So you know your TikTok, your YouTube, your Instagram, your Snapchat, how everyone has content and they can be content creators? They all have to use different apps. Ethereum is one huge platform. So think of it as a marketplace. At least that's what I think Ethereum is. So the best way that I can visualize what Bitcoin and Ethereum are like in terms of our financial system is that Bitcoin is a primary market and Ethereum is a secondary market that runs off of the primary market. Other than that, I don't have much on it. Aside from rumors and things I hear, I don't want to display that information on here. I only want to give you what I truly know, and that's all I really know about Ethereum and Bitcoin. And then the last crypto I wanted to talk about is Doge. So why Doge? There's all these other altcoins, why Doge? Well, because it's one of the first cryptos I ever invested in, and I put about $1,000 at $0.05 cents and I'm still holding strong. There's a lot of nice memes, it's all about a dog, and it started off as a joke. 
There are some fundamentals to the coin if you want to talk about it, but that's not why I'm buying this coin. I'm truly buying this coin just because I believe the community is good at heart. But if you want to know the true fundamentals of Dogecoin, it's that it prints 10,000 coins per minute, which comes out to about 525,000 coins a year. So at some point in time, it's going to be deflationary, just like Ethereum. The only problem is, there were a lot of coins introduced into Doge's initial structure. By the end of this year, after everyone's done cheering and saying Happy New Year's, there's going to be about 133 billion coins of Doge out there in circulation. And starting from that moment, 10,000 each minute will be printed. Aside from that, I'm not sure what other fundamental values Doge might have. But I can tell you this, if you think 10,000 coins printed a minute is scary, try to look at how much actual fiat money was printed this last year. Your jaw will drop. I will let you look that number up. But for a little reference sake, if you were to look at inflation, the last 5-6 to six months straight, inflation year over year has been over 5%. And this last month, it hit over 6% for the first time in the US in a while. Buckle up. So I've added GameStop, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge to my portfolio. I'm going to give a quick preview into next week and what options I'll be looking at. There are two companies that I have circled on my list. One goes by the ticker name of SLGG, which is Super League Gaming, and the other is Cortezyme. It goes by the ticker CRTX. Now the Super League Gaming stock is one that I have a little bit more faith in, if I'm being honest. And the Cortezyme stock is the one that I'm being more speculative of since it had a huge fall off recently. Next week, I'll discuss these options plays in more depth and let you know if I'm going to pull the trigger on it. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening to the investing segment. Until next time, ape out. Welcome back, my degenerate family and apes. On today's gambling segment, I'm going to recap the three round robins I made, and by the time I'm done with this segment, I'm going to have four new round robins that I like for this weekend. So without wasting any more time, let's get into it. On Wednesday, I made a round robin that had college basketball and NBA. For the slate, I had Michigan to win the spread, which was set at 12.5. Unfortunately, they won by just 12 because Buffalo covered on a last-second field goal. I had Florida State to win by 20, and they won 105 to 70. I had the Bulls to win by 4, and they beat the Mavs 117 to 107. And then I had the Warriors to at least beat the Timberwolves by 7, and they won 123 to 110. Unfortunately, I had the Heat to win by 4, and they outright lost in overtime to the Lakers. So for this slate of bet picks, I went 3 for 5, and because they were all favorite lines, I actually wound up losing $2.79 on $10 risk for this bet. Sorry guys. But I'm not going to stay sorry for too long because in this gambling game you just got to move on. So now let me give you my FIFA picks from yesterday's match day 9 of 10. The slate I chose had Russia to cover the spread which was to win by at least 3 goals and they humiliated Cyprus by winning 6-0. I had Sweden to win and unfortunately they lost to Georgia 2-0. I had North Macedonia's money line, and they won 5-0 against Armenia. 
I had the Spain and Greece game to go under 2.5 goals and Spain won 1-0. I had the Slav Bowl to be a draw and Slovenia and Slovakia actually drew at 2-2. I had Portugal to win by 2 goals and unfortunately they tied 0-0 to Ireland. I had the Germany and Liechtenstein game to go under 5.5 goals and boy was I wrong. Germany scored 9. Liechtenstein scored 0 but the over was hit. And then unfortunately... My sad little country, we lost to Iceland. I had Romania's money line and I watched the game and it was so disappointing because Romania had so many shots on goal. I believe they had 23 shots on goal with 7 being on target and Iceland only had like 7 shots the whole game. But it is what it is and now Romania's chances to go to FIFA come all on Sunday because Romania needs to win and I need North Macedonia to lose or tie. So there's still hope that my country can represent in FIFA. Let's go, baby. So this round robin bet didn't hit the best. It was an 8 team pick and I only went 4 for 8. But because some of the lines were plus money odds, I actually wound up winning $7.51 by only going 4 for 8. Imagine if I got more picks right. That's why I do round robin betting. Because if I go 50-50 with my picks, I make or lose a little bit of money. Once I have one that wins more than 50% of the picks, you'll see why I choose to do round robin betting. Now I also had one more round robin yesterday and it wasn't just the FIFA Bowl. I did include some FIFA games in it. I had Romania again unfortunately, so we all know that one lost. I did choose Spain to cover their spread instead of the over under, and Spain was actually favored to win by 2 goals, so unfortunately that didn't hit either since the game finished 1-0. I chose Croatia to win by 3 goals and they won 7-1 to Malta. I had the Jazz in the NBA to win by 10 points and they actually lost by 11 to the Pacers. And then I had the Ravens for Thursday Night Football to win and unfortunately they were upset 22-10 by the Dolphins. I can't say I'm upset though because watching upsets happen on primetime television is pretty cool. And then the last pick I have on this slate is the Heat at plus 4. They started off strong in the first quarter but wound up blowing the game and losing and covered the spread. Now this round robin was actually pretty bad. I wound up only going 2 for 6 by having the Croatia game hit and the Heat cover their spread. Because of that, I was only able to win one of my bets. So from $15 risk, I wound up losing $10.82 on this bet. That's almost all of it. But don't worry. That's what happens when you have these bad picks. My hope is that I don't have enough of these round robins to eventually bring the account to zero. If that happens, well then maybe you can learn off of me how not to bet. Since our initial round robins didn't return us any money, let's see if I can make 4 round robin picks that after this weekend will make our gambling segment positive. So I'm going to decide to make another FIFA round robin, a college basketball round robin, and then I'm going to have two separate NFL slates. So starting with the FIFA round robin. These are all to cover the spread. I have North Macedonia over Iceland. Romania over Liechtenstein. Finland over Bosnia. France over Kazakhstan. The Netherlands over Montenegro. England over Albania. Italy over Switzerland. And then Denmark over Faroe Islands. Now these games are taking place Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So if you want to place these bets, be sure to place them today. England, Italy, and Denmark play today. France and the Netherlands play tomorrow. 
Finland, Romania, and North Macedonia play on Sunday. Now let me move on to my college hoops round robin. All of these are against the spread as well. Today, I have Kentucky over Robert Morris, Duke over Army, Alabama over South Dakota State, Kansas over Farrellton, UCLA over Villanova, which is going to be a close one, and then tomorrow, I have Michigan over a PVU A&M school, Gonzaga over Texas, and then on Sunday, I'm finishing it up with Florida State University over Florida. On Sunday, once football hits, I want to make two separate round robins. I've been making an underdog round robin, just in case certain weekends there's a lot more dog winners than not. And let me tell you, the last three weeks there have been two weekends where there have been dogs that win. And it has helped my account personally. So I've decided I'm going to put it on this account. So let me begin with the dogs round robin. Since I can only make eight selections, I try to pick as many underdogs that aren't too outrageous. So for this week's round robin, I have the Browns winning over the Steelers, the Saints winning over the Titans, the Lions getting their first win against the Steelers, the Vikings beating the Chargers, the Seahawks beating Green Bay, the Eagles beating the Broncos, the Raiders beating the Chiefs for Sunday Night Football, and then the Panthers beating the Cardinals. Those are all the dogs this Sunday's slate that don't have any ridiculous plus 300 or plus 400 odds. And then my second round robin slate for the NFL that day is going to be Dallas to cover the spread against Atlanta, the Bills to cover their spread against the Jets, the Eagles to cover theirs against the Broncos, the Panthers to cover the spread against the Cardinals, and the Lions to cover it against the Steelers. I also like the Chargers and Vikings game to go over, I like the Chiefs and Raiders game to go over, and then I like Seattle and Green Bay to go under. So until the next episode, I will have four round robins to track, I will be putting a $1 bet on every 28 parlays for each round robin this creates. And since one round robin creates 28 parlays and there's four of them, I'm going to be risking $112 over the weekend and we're going to see what we can turn that into. Well gamblers and degenerates, until next time, ape out. Welcome class. If you've made it this far into the podcast, I want you to give yourself a pat on the back for having great endurance. Alright, today's lesson plan is going to be on the two mentors that gave me my investing philosophy, Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch. So let me start off with Warren Buffett's life. He was born August 30th, 1930 in Omaha, Nebraska, and he's primarily known for his investments and the amount of wealth he's created. Ever since Warren was a little kid, he had a knack for getting money. He would do things like deliver newspaper, collect sodas and recycle bottle caps, and just about any little business venture he could think of at such a young age. His first true and successful business was at the age of 11. You see, Warren got an idea after reading A Thousand Ways to Make a Thousand Dollars about putting pinball machines in barbershops. He had this brilliant idea that if you put a pinball machine in a barbershop, the clients could play the pinball machine while they're waiting for their haircuts. So what Warren did was sell enough newspapers and recycle enough bottles to eventually buy his first pinball machine and put it in one barbershop. Eventually, the return he got off of one pinball machine 
enabled him to buy a second, and so on. He created this little business venture in his local community until eventually he sold it off for $1,200. Talk about an 11-year-old making money moves, I was just learning how to play Madden. From the very early stages, it was clear that Warren was going to be very good with money. He wound up going to Columbia University and learning under Benjamin Graham and Ethan Dodd, which if you're an investment person, you know those are the gurus of value investing. And value investing is literally the thing that molded Warren Buffett. So after graduating from Columbia University, Warren Buffett had an outstanding $9,800 in his saving account. Most of us have loans after college. This fool had 10K. And not only that, he was soon going to start working under Benjamin Graham for a small amount of time. He worked for Benjamin Graham, a true value investor, until 1956 when Graham decided to close his fund. It was at this time that Warren decided to go back home in Omaha, Nebraska and start his own partnership fund, or at least that's what it was called back in the day. Now they're called hedge funds. He ran this little hedge fund like a true genius he was. In 1962, he was about to acquire one company he didn't know was going to change his life forever. Berkshire Hathaway, a textile industry company with bad management that was going to go under soon. From his value investing days in Columbia, Warren Buffett saw something big with Berkshire Hathaway. He saw that they were buying back company shares while simultaneously closing other textile industries that weren't doing great. What he found out is that from the profit they made from selling these industries, they used that money to buy back the shares. So he used his big brain and found out that if I buy enough of these shares back, eventually the company is going to want to buy back the shares from me. And that's exactly what he did for a two-year period. From 1962 to 1964, he built up a position to eventually get 49% stake in Berkshire Hathaway. When Warren Buffett's time finally came, Berkshire Hathaway management wanted to buy back the shares from him. So he and Berkshire management met up to discuss a price that they would be willing to sell these shares at. They eventually settled for a price of $11.50. The thing is, later that week when Warren got the quote for $11.37.5. The reason it was 37.5 cents is because they traded in fractions of eighths. So if Warren Buffett agreed for a price of $11.04, Berkshire Management sent him back a quote of $11.03. This really pissed off Warren to the extent that he didn't sell a single share and in fact started buying more. One great quote that he left regarding this time period is, The greatest enemies of the equity investor are expenses and emotions. What Warren meant is he was talking about himself. He was an equity investor. In order to buy shares back then, you had to pay a lot of commission. So the expenses were a true enemy to an equity investor. Emotions as well, because emotional betting, you can tend to start chasing. He chased so hard and bought back so many shares that eventually he forced his way into the board. And as his first task of being the elective board of directors, he fired all of the management. Isn't that big boss energy? Then Warren was quick to realize that he only did this as an emotional investment. So he quickly had to pivot around or risk losing a really bad performing textile industry. So what he did is he created Berkshire Hathaway as a holding company. What this means is he invests in companies that he finds value in 
and through his funding and through his expertise and knowledge and consulting, he helps them become successful. And by them becoming successful, his company also grows in profits. Warren's a pretty simple guy, and he lives by two rules only. Rule number one is to never lose money, and rule number two is to never forget rule number one. Now before I give you the story on Peter Lynch, I wanted to drop some fun facts about Warren Buffett I don't think you know. Just to prove that Warren Buffett is a human like us, I'll let you know one of the funniest trades I think I've ever heard him make. It was one of his first trades that he decided to make for him and his sister. He bought into a stock called City Services around $38. For some time he saw it decline down to $29 and then it started creeping back up slowly. Eventually it got to $40 and it probably started consolidating because he sold it all. Then, just like anyone else has done in the market, that stock skyrocketed to $200. He learned a very valuable lesson of patience. Isn't it funny though to know that Warren's done the same mistakes that I'm pretty sure we all have, sold a stock too early, and then literally see it skyrocket the next couple days? But now I'm going to give you a reason why he's not so human and why he's well known in the investing world. I'll give you an example of what this guy considers a true winner. He bought shares in the Washington Post in 1973. He didn't sell any of those shares until 2014. And he sold his 28% stake for an over 9,000% gain. Now one interesting side note that I noticed is that Jeff Bezos actually took over the Washington Post, probably renamed it Washington Journal, in 2013. So I do find it a little interesting that Buffett sold a year after Bezos took over. But maybe that's why he sold, because Bezos was willing to overpay. I don't know. But that was just something I found interesting. Because this man literally held on to those shares for 30-something years. And then the last that I want to share with all of you, so no one loses hope out there, is that he earned 90% of his wealth after the age of 50. Which just goes to show you that all these big numbers you hear, and no matter how rich he is, 90% of what he's worth was earned at 50 or later. Just goes to show you that investing is a long game. So class, I hope you've learned something new about Warren Buffett today, and if not, you're a really smart person. Um, I hope I can at least tell you something cool about Peter Lynch, and if you know him too, then maybe you should be leading my podcast. So who is Peter Lynch? Well, he's another genius investor, born January 19th, 1994, in Boston, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, when he was a young boy, his father died when he was the age of 10 due to cancer. So his mother had to work to support the family, and when he got the chance, he eventually worked as a caddy to help support the family as well. While working as a caddy, Peter heard a lot of business talk that bosses and CEOs had on the golf course. He used this to his advantage because when he went to Boston College as a sophomore, Peter used his life savings to buy 100 shares of a company called Tiger Airlines, and he bought them for $8 a share. While he was in college, they eventually rose to $80 a share, and the profits helped him pay for graduation. What a boss. While in school, Peter studied philosophy, psychology, philanthropy, and then eventually he got an MBA. After school, he was eventually hired by Fidelity. He was hired by the Fidelity president as an intern because he was actually caddying for him. 
Life on the golf course seems pretty nice now, huh? It wasn't until 1977, though, that Peter was finally trusted to run a department of the fund. He started the fund when it had just $18 million in assets. I'm going to fast forward here to 1990, and he rose that position to $14 billion. And he had more than a 1,000 positions. I loved hearing what his strategy was. He literally said that he had no limit on what he would buy other than laws. See, back then there were certain laws that his portfolio could not hold more than 5% of a certain security. So this fool literally went around buying thousands of stocks just so he could raise a growth portfolio. I absolutely love him. A little bit more different than Warren. Warren would say look for true and value. This guy said find value. And value is what he found. Because from 1977 to 1990, he had an average annual return of 29.2%. That's 30%. That's insane. To have a 30% annual return for 13 years straight? You could retire with that if you got it for even 5 years. And that's exactly what Peter Lynch did. Well, retire in a way. Because nowadays, he runs something called the Lynch Foundation where he offers small grants for small organizations during the beginning stages of their life cycle. He essentially tries to help them become a bigger company until there's other players out there that want to give them and lend them money. I'll leave you with two of my favorite quotes from him. One of them was actually recently found and the other I've known since I've read his book. The first one which comes from the book of Learning to Earn is invest in what you know. Such a simple quote but it literally is the investing philosophy I follow. And then the second one, it's just funny, and honestly, in my opinion, it shows you how cocky he really believes he is. He quoted something along the lines of, I found out that as markets go down, if you invest in funds, at some point in the future, you'll be happy. You won't get there by reading, now is the time to buy. Well, class, I hope you learned a lesson today on two very great and different thinking value investors. It just goes to show you that you can win multiple ways in the market. You can have someone that picks thousands of stocks, or you can have someone that tries to pick as little stocks as possible because they want to find true value. And I wanted to share with you the two investors that I modeled my investing philosophy after. I still believe in long-term value investing, but I want to be like Peter Lynch, where I look for thousands of stocks and try and find value and growth in them. I know in the long run, value is where it's at, but Peter has shown that you can find value in up to thousands of stocks if you want. And I'm not as smart as Warren yet to be able to look at a company's balance sheet, income statement, and statement of cash flows to determine if intrinsically they're not valued at what they should be. When I get there, trust me, I'll definitely let you know. My last piece of advice on this episode is going to be to try and read Peter Lynch's Learn to Earn Investing book. It's a very easy read that doesn't have a lot of financial jargon in it, and he actually breaks down how to invest in very simple terms. He compares it to baseball games and innings. He tells you how individual investors have a secret weapon by being able to see some stuff that analysts don't for years. And overall, the two books I read from Peter Lynch, Learn to Earn and One Up Wall Street, and he has a third one which I haven't read yet, it's what's truly defined my investing philosophy. I've watched Warren Buffett YouTube videos. I've listened to what he has to say. 
It's just that what he writes and how he relays information is a lot more complex than how Peter Lynch does. Peter Lynch is almost trying to describe how to invest to a 5 or 10 year old. And then you've got Warren Buffett, who to some might seem like he's reading the back of a shampoo bottle. So if you're curious as to where to start with investing, don't start with Warren Buffett. You don't start with the hardest puzzle. Dip your toe in the water. And dipping your toe in the water is reading Peter Lynch's Learn to Earn book on investing. Because that was the first investment book I read before I opened up my very first brokerage account and started my investing journey. And here I am, two and a half years later, trying to start a podcast and run a portfolio off of it. If you made it this far in the episode, I love you all, and until next time, ape out.